your current self really doesn't matter that much. It's called psychological flexibility to hold your current identity loosely, to not be so definitive in how you define and describe yourself. Because if you're overly defining your current self, then that's going to lead you, as what James Clear would say, to defend your identity. And that's what Paul Graham says as well, and to seek to confirm your identity. Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Fran Lebowitz, humility is no substitute for good personality. Our guest today, Dr. Benjamin Hardy, has changed the way we think about our own personality traits. He's an organizational psychologist and the best-selling author of multiple books, including Willpower Doesn't Work and his latest Personality Isn't Permanent, which is coming out June of this year. Ben's blogs are read by millions of people worldwide, and he was the number one writer in the world on Medium for four consecutive years. Ben, welcome. Excited to have you on the Elevate podcast. Thanks, man. Happy to be with you. So you're a good example of someone who, who found their passion at a young age and, and really chased it from there. What made you decide to go into organizational psychology in the first place? Yeah, so I, you know, I'd almost argue against the idea of finding it, but I did discover many things about myself, I guess. Well, I would go against even discovery, but here's what happened for me is I decided psychology specifically after serving a church mission, actually. I had grown up in a very troubled environment, father being a drug addict. Yeah, basically, I just had a very rough situation from about age 11, age 10 to 11 until age 20 when I decided to leave. Luckily, my father overcame a lot of his addictions. It was really bad. I mean, essentially anything and everything you could think of. And he was just in a dark place and I had zero stability. But I ended up serving a church mission connected back with kind of my more spiritual roots. And that experience blew my mind as far as going to a new environment. I was in Pennsylvania, so it wasn't like I was like in some foreign land, but just as far as reading lots of books, helping a lot of people in different communities, serving in like the ghetto aspects of town, like just like literally being exposed to a lot of things, but also having really good leaders who helped me to build confidence and to show me that I could have a great future. So, I mean, that experience and just watching how much my life changed and how much confidence I was able to build is what got me interested in psychology in the first place. Uh, as far as organizational psychology, it was just more practical from my perspective for my goals rather than becoming like a professor or a therapist. And you could become a professor, I guess, of organizational psychology, but it was just more practical as far as learning about motivation, leadership, teams, training. I just liked the applications of it better while I was becoming a writer. So that's why I chose organizational. And what made you decide to get a PhD and what, what was your primary focus? Yeah, I actually think this is a really cool question because a lot of people have asked me through the years, especially because I started writing on Medium during the first year of my PhD program, which was back in 2015. And, you know, my work was quickly successful and many people tried to convince me out of getting the PhD. But, you know, you can never actually understand someone's process without understanding their goals. And so kind of connecting back to my missionary experiences, the reason I chose to get a PhD in organizational psychology specifically is because I'm still open and interested to the idea that in the future, I'll be doing some form of leadership training or development in that sphere, like maybe like missionary work of some sort, but more from a leadership or a training perspective. And so the reason I got the PhD was so that I could potentially still go down that route, even though I'm already doing very well as an entrepreneur and as an author, I just wanted that door to be open for me. Uh, there were other reasons, you know, it was good for my positioning. I learned a lot through a PhD. It gave me time while we were building a family and while I was writing to kind of just be a student. So I'm, I'm glad I did it for many reasons. But the major reason is honestly that my future self, like the future version of me may actually need it to get the job I want. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good reason. Future proof. So you started writing and your writing started getting a lot of attention, but you didn't really have a background in writing or, or marketing even. So how, how, I know you're a voracious learner, but what did you start writing about? And then how did you start getting all this followership? As I mentioned before, 
I mean, you were the top writer on Medium for four straight years. Like that is not a small feat. I mean, that's a massive platform. It is a huge platform and I dominated it for a long time. Uh, it's a really different d- platform now and I'm just jumping back into it. They've actually recently rechanged their rules. I stopped writing on it. You know, this isn't even an answer to your question, but I, I stopped writing on Medium in 2018 for a few reasons. One was for practical sake. I, I had just launched Willpower Doesn't Work. I was learning how to market. I was also trying to finish school. Also, they changed the rules on the platform. For so long, the platform was valuable because you could market within Medium. So I would write an article and then at the bottom of my article, I could have a call to action right. to take people to a landing page to ultimately get 20,000 emails a month for over two years without paid advertising. Right, because you, were, you weren't getting paid for your writing. So that was sort of the quid pro quo. Yeah, well, and you know, I think getting paid per click or paid per article is such a paycheck to paycheck mindset versus yeah. building an email list where you can you know, sell products over a long period of time. So I don't like the paycheck to paycheck mindset. And so that's why I stopped Medium for so long. But they've actually, just for anyone who's listening, changed the rules back. You can put a call to action. They're just a little bit sticklery, more stickler about the rules. But that's why I've gone back. So you got 20,000 emails a month. Not now. No, in the, in the heyday. In the heyday, I had over two years straight of getting 20,000 emails a month through Medium without anything, just traffic, just blog traffic. I wasn't promoting anything through Facebook ads. I was just writing blogs that, you know, and so this kind of answers your question to some degree, but how did it all happen? So I had no formal writing training. I was just kind of getting into my PhD. And so I had done more academic writing, which is not good for viral writing, Yeah. but I had journaled like a madman. So I've, I, on my mission, I really started journaling. And that's when I decided I really liked writing was I, I had read a lot of books and was examining the biographies of the writers, you know, the Stephen Coveys and stuff like that. And just thinking, these are interesting people. And so I was reading a lot of books that were blowing my mind, but I was also journaling just about my missionary experiences or just about what I was learning or even about my future self or just anything, yeah. past, present, future. And I was loving, just enjoying writing. It was very therapeutic. Uh, and I found that I could learn a lot while writing and I just I felt clear and clear as I did it. So, I mean, a lot of people point to like writing in your journal in the morning to kind of clear your mind and stuff like that. And I, I have experienced that many times and I still write in my journal. And so I, I just happened to get really into that, you know, and I've spent many thousand hours journaling. I mean, I've got volumes of journals. And so I think that that's where I really learned how to communicate with words. When I started blogging and how I was able to do it so successfully from the beginning, there were a few reasons, I think, why. One was I was very specific about the reason why I wanted to blog. Like I actually didn't want to blog from the beginning. That was not my goal. And I actually procrastinated starting to blog for a few years because I just didn't want to be a blogger. I wanted to be an author. I wanted to write books. But it, it just became painfully clear to me that the only way to achieve my goal was to start blogging and building an online audience. Like, So my future self at the time was you know, and this was in 2015, a professional writer. I wanted to be with one of the big five publishers. I wanted to be making at least six figures. I had just gotten three foster kids. So I was thinking more about income and family. So I was very clear on the goal, which was my future self. But then I started asking a lot of questions like to agents, to authors, as far as how do you actually get a big book deal? And the answer became unanimous that I needed at least, you know, 50 to 100,000 emails at minimum to get a really good book deal like that I was interested in. And so that one number became the thing that drove my process. I mean, it wasn't, you know, so it's a combination of things, but I, I had to learn how to succeed because my goal, I was serious about the goal, you know, whereas I think a lot of people are, especially in the writing world, they're more obsessed with process. They say you should really obsess about the process. In my opinion, the process is always based on the goal. Um, so I learned how to write viral headlines. I learned how to, you know, structure my articles in a way I studied what worked. One thing that really helped my writing was, you know, aside from learning the tactics such as headlines, article structure, calls to act, you know, the things that would actually lead to vast readership is just actual expertise in a subject. Um, Writing about, in my case, psychology, but also writing it from an emotional standpoint where I was very, I was writing my opinion and also backing it with facts so that it didn't feel like I was just sharing my opinion. It felt like it was like, interesting, but also true. So those are some of the things that helped. Well, there's some themes that I 
some consistent themes I'm hearing. So you talk about future self a lot. I, I also sense the begin with the end in mind, right? That's you, a big you, one. That's huge. <laughs> I think that that's a fundamental principle that is not talked about enough. Yeah. And I think people, I talked a little about this a little bit in my book, Elevate, and it, it occurred to me years ago, like I, I set one-year goals and I would hit them. And then I realized they were sort of like incongruous, right? And And it sounds like what you were doing in the path that I started to see really high achievers do is sort of understand the five-year goals and then and then the one-year goals become down payments towards getting towards those longer goals, which should fulfill your purpose in some way if you want to be happy. A lot of people achieve goals that that don't make them happier or fulfilled in any way. So what I heard you say consistently was, yeah, you talk to agents and they said, yeah, it's not marketing a book can be harder than writing a book. So it's not about how great you write. It's like, do you have a hundred thousand emails? And so then it was like, how do I do that? Is it worth the publisher's time to even think about you? Right. So that, I mean, you were very intentional with, if you want to write a book with a major publisher, you need a hundred thousand emails. If you want to write a hundred thousand emails, you better write on a platform where you can collect people's emails, right? Yeah, very much, very much. And, you know, that is what we call deliberate practice in psychology, right? Like Malcolm Gladwell called it the 10,000 hour rule, which is not a true rule because you can do something for 10,000 hours and not have that lead to expertise. Like deliberate practice means you have a clear future self and the daily process is supposed to translate to a change in characteristics and in situation, you know? So like when I would blog, like I was very much like, how could I make that better? And I would tweak the headline like two months later, republish the same article and it would get like 50,000 more views. And like a lot of people who are still writing on Medium never really went that far with the platform are the same people that say, you know, you should just write for the passion of it. And I think that there's something to be said about that, but these are the same people that would also say that they wish they could go pro. Yeah, the headline thing's interesting. I've heard this consistently, that you can get 10 times the views with the right headline. I guess it's, again, it's the ends that you're looking for because some people say, well, I don't want to learn headlines or that feels gamey or something like that. But if you wrote something of significance and you wanted more people to read it to have a bigger impact, and then someone told you that headline was the (laughs) the best way that you could do that, wouldn't that be where you would focus? And it sounded like you made that logical, you connected those points and a lot of people uh, just stubbornly uh, don't. It's ego. It's ego because it can feel like you've now taken art and or something personal or something that was really important to you. Now you've turned it into marketing or business. And so then it feels less pure from like an artist perspective, which I also think is false. Yeah. But a lot of people have that. There was uh, someone I heard, giving advice a few years ago to someone around sort of building their platform. And, and he was like, look, if you want to make an impact, go get famous. Because if people don't know you, then your work's not going to make an impact. <laughs> and and uh, it, it was interesting because I think the person was a little bit taken back by it, but I think he was very directly giving advice correlated to what that person, person wanted. <laughs> yeah, I guess you just have to ask yourself on a results perspective, are you willing to do various things that are currently uncomfortable to you to achieve the results you're looking for. And um, this to me is actually a big aspect of what I wrote about in this book, but a lot of people are very, they make decisions based on current preferences, you know, like based on what their current feelings are. So if they don't like the idea of marketing or becoming famous now, but their future self or whoever they want to be or whatever results they want in the future are someone who are doing those things. At some point, they've got to go through the transition right. of, of being okay and comfortable with those. But I think often people overemphasize their current identity and their current situation, which is basically what Carol Dweck would call a fixed mindset. Yeah. And, and again, what the end in mind. So I'm curious, can you share some of your headline tips? And, and I don't know if they're, are they as relevant today? I know, I know things have sort of changed. Um, and I know search engines sort of change around, but what were the sum of things you, you discovered? And actually, interestingly, how did you, because I think the process of how, how you broke this down and learn is interesting too. But so how did you go about learning and testing this? And, then, and what are some things that people should keep in mind who write? Yeah. So one of the first things I did when I was really first starting in probably like, let's just say like May, April or May of 2015, when I was kind of like, okay, I took an online course from John Morrow. John Morrow's like a guy who does his guest blog. He, he's got like, he teaches bloggers how to blog similar to like a Jeff Goins. 
And I took his course called the Gas Blogger course. I think it still exists. This again was like five years ago almost at this point. I guess it was five years ago since we're into May. Holy cow. But, you know, it was $197. And this is a big aspect, I think, as well as investing money into goals, investing money into your future identity. Investment creates commitment. You know, just like sharing your goals creates believability. You know, you believe it. Well, just like paying the, I would say the best 50 bucks you could pay is to sign up for the 5K or the 10K in three months. Oh, yeah. That's called a forcing function. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I think it's great. But yeah, I hit honestly so much of what I learned came from like the first three modules of that course. (laughs) Like I, I, I I didn't even finish it. I mean, it gave me so much value as far as how to pitch myself onto places like at the time Huffington Post and Forbes or business inside. Just like learning how to present yourself, pitch yourself was big, but also his content on headlines was so good at the time. Obviously, I then adjusted it and figured out my own things and learned from other people who had their own strategies. But some of the kind of the clear principles, you know, usually numbers are always attractive in headlines. You know, if you're talking about a date, for example, like, I mean, if you just say like, you know, if you use random numbers like June 15th, 2023, like for some reason, numbers are are catchy. That's why listicle articles always continue to do well using words like this or these. So rather than saying like, you know, a morning routine, for example, a morning routine that will improve your life, it would be like this morning routine, you know, and what would it be? What would it actually produce? Like in in numeric terms, like would it, you know, would improve your life by increasing your creativity by 34% or by, you know, save you 20 hours per week, like just trying. And obviously this then is where you know, you got to be careful with your headline to your actual article content. You want it to be right. truthful and resonant. Not link baity. Yeah. Click baity. Yeah. I'm big on like, you know, I learned something from Ryan Holiday back in the beginning where he said that your headline should dare someone to click on it. You know, and I, I just liked that visual of just daring someone to click. But then I've, I've always been big on blow their mind once they get in the inside. And that has a lot to do with the structure because usually people won't read something if it feels painful or difficult to read. You got to structure correctly, you know, usually short sentences, short paragraphs, lots of white space. But also hopefully the content is good enough that they they read to the bottom and want to share it. You know, so I mean it's not just about marketing. It, it genuinely is about doing very well. It's just if you kind of like what you said, if you care about it enough, or at least I did and was committed to specific results in my case, doing this on a professional level, I was committed to figuring out how to get people to read the work. No, that makes a ton of sense. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info the ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. 
Go to shopify.com slash elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. So somehow you managed to write and publish two books while you were still earning your PhD, including uh, your first, which is Willpower Doesn't Work. So tell me what made you focus on willpower and why does willpower not work? Mm-hmm. So I actually applied to work with Roy Baumeister, who is the main researcher on the subject of willpower, and I got rejected to work with him. Uh, the first time I applied to graduate school, I got rejected by 15 schools. <laughs> but he was one of the people I wanted to work with because I was intrigued by the research on willpower. And there's a lot of different ways to look at willpower. But the reason I wrote the book was from a few different standpoints. One was addiction. You know, I came from, like I mentioned earlier, an addiction standpoint. My younger brother still is an extreme addict. Uh, we recently checked him into a treatment facility here in Florida. And, you know, it's not, it's not rocket science that willpower is probably a bad approach to overcoming addiction. Especially if you're in like a serious addiction, willpower is the thing that would actually keep you in. At some point or another, you actually need to recognize that you can't do it by yourself. That you probably need to be open and honest that you've got a problem and that you need help and that you need a new environment, a new situation. And so I, I wrote the book in many ways for my brother because he was someone who had a lot of what I would consider incredible potential and very good, uh, sincere desires to pr- improve his life. But he just stayed in crappy situations around ba- you know, the people that would keep him stuck. There's a totally other angle of the book because the book's really about focusing on context first versus your individual self. We live in a very individual culture, you know, habits, et cetera, where we're focused so much on ourselves and we often ignore the context that shapes us in the first place. And so, you know, when I became a foster parent of three kids, we were able to immediately watch, you know, they go from an environment where they're completely limited to an environment where they're less limited. <laughs> you know, there's obviously plenty of limitations in our environment, but they were all over a year behind in school. Their parents had neglected them. I mean, honestly, the five-year-old didn't even know how to count to 10 at age five, you know, and all sorts of emotional baggage. And so we, you know, you give them access to tutors, to sports, to friends, to travel, to grandparents that care, to good health, to routines. And like in a short period of time, they have new resources. There's actually a theory called self-expansion model which just basically means that our ability to create results is based on our resources, most of which come through our relationships. And so you know, a lot of it had to do with what are the, you know, from an entrepreneurial perspective, how can you put yourself into better environments so that you can produce better results? So that, it was just less about the self and more about shaping the environment that allows things to happen. That's why I wrote that book. Yeah. The, I mean, the, there's been a lot more writing on this recently. I, it makes so much sense, but I don't, I don't know that a lot of people, you know, realize it in terms how much the environment, you know, it's impacts <laughs> willpower, right? Like as someone said, if you don't want to drink, you probably don't want to hang around a group of friends who go to a bar every night, right? It's you just can't going, do it. It's just going to use up your, your, <laughs> your willpower. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It'll burn out your, your, what they call decision fatigue. You know, right. like if you're still thinking about it, then that means it's still a problem. <laughs> That's actually why, uh, Michael Jordan's quote so good. Once I made a decision, I never thought about it again. Yeah. Eliminate it once and then don't think about it anymore. Like it's now gone. You don't have to leave it in your fridge, you know, so you're constantly wondering if you should take it or not. Yeah. I mean, I've seen this particularly when we vacation in certain areas. I, I think you're where you choose to live and the community that you choose it's to big. be in is huge, right? I mean, if everyone's, if your community is out at the bar all night, you'll be out at the bar. If your community is hiking 10 miles a day, then you'll probably outdoing that with them. And I, I think, I don't think people realize how impactful that is. We curate our environments much more precisely as well now with the internet. And so we've got to be very careful about what is unconsciously influencing us. And obviously there's way more being written about this now. Uh, I wanted to write about it more in general terms, you know, but very interesting stuff. So Ben, we'll get, we'll get into your upcoming book in a little bit, but you know, I, I mentioned you wrote both of these uh, books while you're getting your PhD. You've also written a lot about devotion to your family. Uh, you have five kids. How do you structure your life to prioritize family while also keeping up with these pretty hefty professional commitments that you have? Yeah, I find that, like, as far as writing is concerned, just as a simple example, 
you know, and even from a podcast perspective or some form of creative standpoint, like I learned a principle from a, a friend of mine and I, it resonated a lot and he called it the three M's make money in the morning. <laughs> and this is why I like honestly morning routines is because before school, like I, you know, I would just write an article, you know, maybe take an hour or two, but I would do that. And if you do that over two or three years and you're getting better at it, you know, from a deliberate practice standpoint, you could write hundreds of articles in the time you either would have been sleeping or chilling on Facebook, you know? So like, it's not that hard to actually knock out a lot of stuff if you actually do something for, you know, 60 to 120 minutes a day, and particularly in a flow state where you're not distracted by notifications and things like that. And so for me, a lot of, a lot of what I do is focused on getting myself into the right frame of mind and doing great work before 8am, you know, when life gets busy or whatever happens, you know, that's really how I write books. I mean, I've got two coming out this year. I'm starting two more in the near future and, and my life's only busier from a family standpoint, but it's actually less busy and less stressful from a career standpoint. Cause you know, as far as how I structure my day and I will give huge kudos to my wife, like she's, she is the rock that holds, you know, at least the family side of it very structurally. She wanted to be a stay-at-home mom. That's just, you know, she's been through a lot herself. She's just a really cool person. And um, so she's just really great with the kids. And that's what she wanted to do. She's actually honestly pregnant with our sixth kid. <laughs> wait, 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 she's pregnant with your sixth kid. You have two books coming out this year, not, not just one. How do you release two books in a year? Are they both, are they with the same publisher? Or no, like, the okay. other one is actually, I don't know if you've ever heard of Dan Sullivan. Yeah, yeah. Dan Sullivan is the founder of Strategic Coach, good friend of mine. And I've been learning from Dan for probably the last four or five years. Really love his ideas. And I just got to know him through various groups. And I heard him present his idea on what he calls who, not how, which is kind of the base of Strategic Coach as far as who's involved in your work people rather than doing it all yourself. And when I heard him present it, this is about two years ago, shortly after Willpower Doesn't Work came out, but I just said, Dan, I'd like to turn that into a book. What do you think? <laughs> and he was like, okay. You know, he knew me, he knew of my work. And so he was like, yeah, let's do it. I actually, this is kind of funny, but I, I tried to do both books at once with my publisher, which with Personalities and Permanent is Penguin Random House. And they didn't want the book. They didn't want Dan's book. And so actually I was hitting my head against the wall. And then Tucker Max, who I know has recently been on your show, yeah. he's he actually edited both books. He edited Personality Isn't Permanent and he edited who not how but he was the who because i it, it became obvious that i couldn't do it myself and that's kind of a core aspect of that book is that you know we procrastinate and we stop doing things because often we put all the pressure on ourselves and so thankfully i let tucker get us that book deal so tucker himself did the editing oh yeah yeah he edited both of those books yeah and he uh, he's a brilliant writer and he's a good friend but he got us the book deal with hay house for who not how and now they've got a great relationship with dan and i'm just kind of an independent i didn't want them to sign the deal with me because i wanted to stay with penguin but so they signed the deal with dan but i wrote the book and i'm an author on the book and um yeah so that's been interesting it is a big year because uh, i'd say the marketing is of the book is so much work that i couldn't imagine having two when does the other one come out the other one comes out in October and the marketing of that book will be very different and the expectations for that book will be very different. The personalities and permanence far more of a general book. The marketing strategies are probably going to be quite different for both books. But yeah, I mean, as far as daily structure, if you still wanted that, I'd give it to you. Okay. So your, your key to balance is just allocating, understanding the division of, of resources and allocating sort of different part of the day for different focus. Is that sort of what I would take away from that? Some of it. I mean, my, well, to kind of pull it together, my wife and I, we, we balance each other out in a really specific ways. For example, like I, I really like writing in the morning. And so I don't actually want to be there in the morning with the kids. <laughs> like I, that's like my gold time. And so like, right, that's your cognitive. Writing. Yeah. yeah. And so I'm like, you know, like I feel there was a long period of time where I felt guilty where I was like, maybe I should just wake up at four in the morning. Right. And then help Lauren with the breakfast. But you know, we're just on the same page where it's like, Nope, you just go, you work in the mornings just, and then while school was going on, I would just pick up the kids from school and I'd be done. You know, like one of the big aspects of willpower doesn't work is stress and recovery. So like really focused, crushing something and then what's called psychological detachment from work where you just fully unplug and experience flow in other areas of your life. In this case, it was my kids or whatever it is. And so for me, I wake up between five and six 
exercise journal. And then I write and try to get as much creative work as I can done before 9am. And then usually there's just, whether it be something like this, you know, an interview or a meeting or whatever from 9am until two. And then I just go home and I don't do anything. It is what it was, you know, and then the next day I just try again, but very much trying to unplug after that's done for the whole psychological detachment from work being present. And me right now, like I'm simplifying even further because at least in my case, I'm recognizing now that my oldest is 12. Like I'm just seeing that I have a smaller window and that and from my perspective, this time really matters and my own values have adjusted. And so I'm working less, which requires me to do better with the smaller amounts of time I give myself to work. Yeah, I, I fell into a very similar thing uh, as you. And I think, I think we figure these things out and then, and then we read something and it sort of explains it where I used to always be that breakfast meeting guy. <laughs> I, you know, I'd go to Panera, I'd be there two days a week. And, then, and somehow I got into more of a routine in the morning, really realized that I was cognitively better started writing a lot more and realized I was much like, I can't write after like two or three o'clock. I can't edit uh, for sure. And I just stopped doing breakfast. And I was like, this is my really good cognitive time. So there's a certain group of tasks I do in the morning. And then there's things like meetings and other stuff that are better in the afternoon. And, you know, then I read Dan Pink's book when, and it sort of explained the whole reason. So I'd sort of fallen into it, but then like you read a book like when and it sort of explains the science and, and justification on that. And that that's been a, a game changer for me. I actually, I did breakfast meetings because I found lunch meetings disruptive to the day. But once I realized how important the morning was, I didn't want morning meetings anymore. And as a leadership team in our company, we're almost kind of synchronized around no morning meetings so that we can all have that time to kind of do the, the, the work that's the reading, the writing, the editing, the production, the, you know, it's different than meetings or collaboration or otherwise. Yeah. The higher creative work, right. That's really taxing where you don't want distractions or anything. Right. Right. Dan actually showed that, you know, in, in when, and the the timing that creative brainstorming meeting or discussion, you actually may even be better being a little bit sort of tired and and kind of off your guard. It's just, you're just using a different sort of part of your brain to do those sort of tasks. I think so. Fine, to be honest with you, doing a podcast when I'm slightly tired, but <laughs> writing kind of what you're talking about, like as far as writing at 2 p.m., you know, like yeah. it's a different side of your brain. People send me something to edit or five or six at night and like, hey, I, I need to get this out tomorrow and or the client. <laughs> and my answer is always like, I'll get up at six and edit it for you. Like yep, I, I yep, just, yep. it doesn't work for me past a certain time. I just, uh, I don't know. It sounds like you found a similar thing. Definitely. Yeah. I always tell people it'll be to you at eight or nine in the morning. (laughs) And if I have to get up at three or four, that's better for me than staying up until midnight. Right. I mean, I always felt like you're hiring some of these lawyers sometimes to work in the middle of the night when they're, you know, takes twice as long. (laughs) It's true. If your brain's not working, it's just sometimes when I'm in that zone, it's so hard to edit a sentence. You can feel it. It's like you're reading it 10 times. You're like, I just shouldn't do this now. Yeah. Your brain's sapped, man. It's fried. So personality isn't permanent. I'm glad there's some hope for some of us. So tell me, what are the issues with some of the traditional ways that we think about personality that you wanted to address in this book? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I will start by saying that identity and personality are two separate subjects, or at least two separate constructs. Identity, in my opinion, is enormously more important. Identity is how you self-describe. And it's your self-concept, usually shaped by story, narration. Right. It's often, for most people, based on either present or former circumstances. Very rarely would someone's identity be based in the future, such as Elon Musk, who says he's going to die on Mars. (laughs) I wouldn't bet against him, but... I don't bet against him either. (laughs) And I also think it's really powerful that we can all watch that his future-oriented self is the thing driving his behavior, whereas most people's identity is rooted in their past. And so just to kind of pull this together, your identity is how you self-describe. So if I were to tell you I'm an introvert, that actually may say more about my identity than my personality. Personality is how you consistently show up in various situations. And the thing about personality is, is that you will show up different in different situations, as we described before. Yeah. You know, if I were to watch you just as an example throughout a given day, just watch a snapshot of you in the morning and watch a snapshot of you at night, but you weren't, you know, you didn't look the same. I may think you're two separate people. And so it's not as stable and stable in all situations as we think it is. 
your identity is your self-concept and usually the con self-concept over time, you know, drives your behavior, which kind of can create a generalized personality. The kind of the traditional views, which are not scientific, not helpful even, are that it's hardwired, it's innate, can't really change it. It's something you discover. It's past-based, you know, so the only way to understand yourself is by looking to your past. That's not how Viktor Frankl would see people, by the way. And I, I tend to agree with Frankl on many things. I actually coincidentally read that book in February on a plane back from vacation, and it just couldn't have been more relevant or timely. I read it twice in April. For what came up in the last couple of weeks, yeah. Yep. Yeah, so, you know, another big, big myth is that personality exists in types. There's actually no such thing from a psychological perspective of a personality type. So, like, a Myers-Briggs, a DISC, an Enneagram, like, no psychologist would ever use those tests. They're not considered good science. They're also just not considered a good philosophy of, of personality. Um, the tests themselves are very poorly constructed from, like, a, what we call psychometric or, like, just the science of test construction and validation. They're bad tests. I'll give you one reason why. Like, so the main main theory of psychology is called the Big Five, which I, I tend to like it, although it's not a perfect theory. There is no perfect theory of personality, but the Big Five breaks personality into five factors, like extroversion, neuroticism, which is basically emotional stability, yeah, conscientiousness, which is like self determination, stuff like that. But you would never be cast as a type with the Big Five. You're actually given a percentile rank on all of those things, you know, like a bell curve. So like we actually let our three older kids take the big five <laughs> just for fun. And we were, we were very clear at the beginning, look, whatever score you get, it isn't permanent, obviously. And the research is big on that, that your personality is going to change over time, but also you're on a percentile, you know, like, so you might be in the 30th percentile for extroversion, you know, but right. that thing can change, but you'd never be thrown into a category. But the thing about the big five and other really good psychology tests, like any test that's generally a good test, you know, like Angela Duckworth's grit test or just most good psychological tests, the questions are on what's called a Likert scale. Have you ever heard of a Likert scale? I've heard of it, but I could not define it for you. A Likert scale is basically like, if I were to ask you a question, you know, how motivated are you in the morning? You would be given an option of not at all or tons and then you'd be given multiple potentials in the middle it might be a seven likert scale where it's like not at all and then in the middle it would be neutral you know and then on the other end it would be absolutely and you could then pick somewhere on that scale of where you're at you know yeah whereas most type-based tests they don't they're not based on likert scales which is really how you would study these things they actually give you a multiple choice question of four options <laughs> where there's a forced choice and often none of the options are good options. And uh, there's so many problems with these tests. My major concerns are what they actually do to people's identity, even though they're really bad science. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. So even though, look, I, I've done a lot of them. We've done ones. But so even though they're bad science, I've seen it help a lot of people in terms of introspection or what? No, just even, you know, Myers-Briggs or, or Colby or DISC in terms of understanding some of their tendency. Not that it's bucketing them at something, but what I've really found just in my experience with some of those tests is that they explain, let's not typecast you, but say you're tend to be in one quadrant and someone's in the under, other opposite it really does explain some of the interpersonal struggles, 
how I've seen people kind of default to one way from, a, I think that, I think the way you're describing it is good that they can be helpful at relating to other people or at least understanding where they're coming from to some degree. That's the biggest benefit I've seen. Yeah, I agree. I think that, I think you can use them for that. And by the way, the Colby, Kathy would claim it's not a, a personality test. And I actually, from a, like a, an actual definition of personality may agree with her. Yeah. No clue what it actually is. It is a typing test. It's like a tendency like thing more than. Yeah. They call it drive or your instincts. Um, I mean, I think that they're all kind of similar. I think you can get some good things out of them, but I think that on an individual level, from my perspective, I would consider them more of a, of an identity test than a personality test because they give you a way to describe yourself. Yeah. Define yourself. I don't know if you've ever heard of Paul Graham by chance. Yeah. I mean, he's got a really, really good lecture talking about, you know, keeping your identity small as an example. I don't know if you've read that one, but basically he talks about how, and James Clear actually points to this in his book, which I think is really good, you know, because he spends some time talking about identity, which is crucial. But so where the research is at in personality, and I would point people to a TED talk called The Psychology of Your Future Self. This is by Daniel Gilbert. He he wrote the book, Stumbling Upon Happiness. He's a Harvard psychologist. Him and other people have studied this, a lot of them. Hal Hirschfeld's another one at UCLA. And Carol Dweck's work is probably the most important. Yeah. But your current self really doesn't matter that much if you have a growth mindset. If you have a fixed mindset, then you're defined by who you are today. Hmm. And that's actually what to some degree, <laughs> what Viktor Frankl found. He said, once people lost purpose and hope in their future, the present became too much to bear. And so they died. And so with Carol Dweck's work, she would give people big tests that were way too hard for them all. People with the fixed mindset, the meaning they gave to the failure was, I'm dumb. You know, basically they were defined by the present. Carol Dweck actually calls it the tyranny of now. Interesting. And those who failed, but had a growth mindset, they said, I'm not there yet. And the meaning that they gave to the difficulty was I can get smarter. And basically with this and all the research from Daniel Gilbert on future self, basically the idea here is it's really good to view your former self, the person you used to be as a different person. You know, you may not see yourself as exactly the same person you were 10 years ago, as an example, rather than assuming you're the same guy, it's actually better to say, I'm not the same person. There's many things that I do differently now you know, and that's actually very consistent. Daniel Gilbert has found that if he asks people, are you the same person you were 10 years ago? Almost unanimously, people say no. But the same is true for your future self. You want to view your future self as a different person. They're going to have a different perspective than you, different maturity, different situation. They're going to make different decisions than you. There's a lot more to personality than just how you show up. It has a lot to do with your knowledge, your requirements, your situation. (laughs) Like, you're going to be in a different place. And so the key here, kind of pulling all this together, is is that your current self really doesn't matter that much. It's called psychological flexibility to hold your current identity loosely, to not be so definitive in how you define and describe yourself. Because if you're overly defining your current self, then that's going to lead you, as what James Clear would say, to defend your identity. And that's what Paul Graham says as well, and to seek to confirm your identity. So if I were to say I'm an introvert, as an example, I would probably try to confirm that bias. Right. Uh, I would also try to defend that if someone were to tell me I'm not. Well, well, and the proof is, you know, I think I'm sort of a extroverted introvert. Uh, the proof is, you know, how many people are surprised at people who identify as introverts, but are in exactly. speaking or leadership roles. Almost everyone considers themselves an introvert. Yeah. And they say, look, I, I had to teach myself to do this. Like I, I, it exhausts me. That's how I know I'm an introvert. I, you know, I, I, and I, I liked how Susan Pink sort of defined it as really, it's more of high stimulation, low stimulation in terms of high stimulation environments are, are exhausting for me, but I have learned how to operate in them because I have to for what I do. So you, you learn how to do that, right? If you're a lot of speakers are introverts and I think people are surprised by that. Yeah. And I also just would say they're not introverts. I would say that they're on that spectrum Yes, and that they, like all of us, need downtime and that they, like all of us, need human time as well. (laughs) And that they may need more downtime because they're so under pressure in social situations to be the front stage person and all that goes into that, that they need more downtime or more recovery because of the extreme stress of the social situations versus a typical person who's not on front of a stage trying to command attention. 
So for me, it kind of more is a reflection of stress and recovery. They right. put themselves under way more stress in social situations. Therefore, they need more recovery, just like you would at the gym. But the point here is, is that they identify as an introvert, even though from a personality perspective, they actually wouldn't be. Right. Uh, from a personality perspective, they actually probably are somewhere in the middle or they might even scale a little higher on extroversion than the average person. But their identity and the way they describe themselves is that they're an introvert because absolutely they need time by themselves as we all do. I want to ask you, because there's something you said before that there's sort of a, I'm sure you have an answer to this. Like if I thought about it enough, I could probably come up with it. But you talked about sort of not being defined by your current self and anxiety over that. But how do you reconcile that with sort of just being in, in the present? Yep. Yeah. I love that. It's a brilliant question. It does seem like there's some tension between those two topics. There is. Yeah. This actually, to be honest with you, is the topic of the book I'm writing. Like I'm literally writing the proposal for it because of smart people like you who asked that question. So you're going to make me wait two years for the answer? No, 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 no. <laughs> I, I will share a few quotes and thoughts and I'll even pull some Frankel in. Awesome. So there's a quote from Dan Sullivan, our good old guy. He said, the only way to make your present better is by making your future bigger. And so one question about being present is what does that actually mean? Um, Hal Hirschfeld, who's at UCLA, he studied, you know, the idea of having a future self concept and how that relates to present decision making. Just as an example, like when you think of your future self as someone different than you and that they have different preferences in many ways, they're in a different situation. And if you start to think about what would they want, that can allow you then in the present moment to make more informed decisions rather than just making decisions based on your current preference, you know? Sometimes, as an example, my preference is to eat a huge bag of donuts. My future self would like to be healthy. <laughs> yeah. Well, so like when I go home, you know, speaking of daily structure, given that I wake up early and I do a lot of cognitively loaded work, sometimes I go home and I'm fried. You know, unless I really am like smart with my nutrition and sleep and stuff like that, then I can really balance it so that I'm really uh, <laughs> extremely energized throughout the day. A lot of that has to require intention, though. And so, sometimes I'll go home and I will be admittedly fried and just not want to do anything, even though I've got now these kids who are really vying for my attention. And so just as one example of this, but then I'll pull Frankel in. And there really is a lot to this. But a couple of weeks ago, my son really wanted me to go swimming with him. You know, being here in Florida, we have a pool. And I just didn't, I didn't want to. I'm like, dude, Logan, I will just watch you. My preference in the moment was just to sit and watch him swim. And I would just watch ESPN videos on YouTube to kind of just <laughs> chill yeah. out. But then I really thought about it from a more simple perspective. Is this the person I want to be? What would my, how would my future self want to remember this? Do my current preferences really matter? And, you know, the decision was very obvious that if I was to watch this video on replay, I would definitely jump in the pool. Like my, my future self's preferences in that case mattered more. And my future, you know, and just honestly of having a better relationship with my son. And so I jumped in the pool and had an amazing experience and I was incredibly present. But that ability to make an intentional, informed, deliberate decision was based on the future that I wanted to create. And that's right. really, again, what Frankel found is that when you have a purpose, you know, he says that life is never made, made unbearable by circumstance, only by having a lack of purpose and meaning for your life. And I think that often people talk about being present as having no future or no past, just being absorbed in the moment. And from a psychological standpoint, first off, that's impossible. Second off, your present will be better if it's informed by the future you want to create. You know, that's why, for, why um, Sullivan's quote so good, that the only way to make your present better is by making your future bigger. And that doesn't mean it's always going to be easier. Sometimes that means your presence is going to be filled with highs and lows because you've got goals that require you in the moment right here and now to actually do something with your day versus not. So that's some degree how I feel about it. Obviously, there are required times where you just need to let go of all that and just totally chill. And that's why I think stress and recovery are both so key. Sometimes you just need to fully recover and just kick it and just be fully grateful for where you're at and enjoy it all. But even that only has context. And meaning from a Franco perspective, if you have hope and purpose for your future. Right. It, it seems like a balance. I'm going to butcher the quote, but there's the, what is it? If you're regretful, you're focused on the past, if you're anxious, the future, it, it seems like you really need to toggle between 
where am I now? Where am I coming from? And where, where do I hope to be in order to get kind of an optimal state out of that? I just think that the future can inform the present. You know, I think that that's really what it's about. I think having a sense of purpose and hope for your future can inform the present. But the goal is obviously to be here and now, you know, like right. basketball player wants to win the championship, but really needs to focus on just playing defense and just being in this practice or being in this game. But that is informed without question by the future they're trying to create. Yeah. And I mean, that's relevant to where we are now as a society. I think, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, there was a Friday Ford I wrote last week and someone had shared something about this notion of 10, 10, 10. Like there's a lot of people making some pretty short term decisions that I think they'll regret and behaviors. And he said, how do you feel about that in 10 minutes, 10 days and 10 years? And, and ideally, you would really want to feel good about that across all of those lenses because those time periods will, will happen for most of us. Yeah. Totally. I mean, I've noticed this, man, <laughs> like with the pandemic, as an example, I've asked all my audience that question as far as how is your future self helping you get through this? The ones that don't have an answer are distracted and very stressed. Yeah, they don't have a consistent sort of vision or rubric to be like, look, I, I one of the terms that I used in the thing last week, I see this a lot is retroactive unhappiness, right? So yep. a company yep. get, gets in trouble they don't want to pay their bill. And so they say that they didn't like it, whatever it was, even though they never objected to it before. And I just, <laughs> look, if that's how you want to be, that has repercussions for you in, in the future. I, there's a karmic aspect to it, I think, what goes around. But just, you got to make different decisions, but I don't think you should change your, your value set. Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting concept. I don't think I've ever heard that specific term, retroactive unhappiness, but that really is what trauma is. Yeah. is it's it's continuing to be unhappy today because of what happened yesterday or five years ago or 20 years ago and the emotional imprint that that can leave upon you and at the end of the day it's about choosing your perception of the experience choosing the meaning that you gave to it you know rather than holding on to it, it's like okay i can learn from that i'm not gonna do it again versus continuing to be sad because of whatever occurred or, or really being honest about the situation so let's say you had tucker, that's a big one <laughs> you had tucker edit these two books for you and then you your deal fell through because of this and you lost your advance and you got caught a little bit short on cash flow you could either go to tucker and be like tucker you know man i just i wasn't happy with the work that you did on that i'm not paying you or you can say you know, I, I just got caught short with this and like, let's work something out. I, I for some reason, yeah, people find the yeah. former like easier to do and it's so not the right decision. Well, so again, with Frankl, and I'm glad we're both on the same page with this, but also Bessel van der Kolk and many others have said the same thing. He said, emotion ceases to be suffering when you give it a clear picture. Yeah. And basically what that means is you turn it into a story and you give it words and, and you tell the truth. You have to actually share honestly what's going on you know, otherwise you're, you're stuck. Like that's the only way out. You know, all progress starts by telling the truth. So yeah, you've got to express your emotions to yourself and other people. That's again, kind of why willpower wouldn't work is because you've got to actually open up right. and be honest right. and say, this is where I'm at. I need help. Or this is just what really happened. This is how I feel. And yes, it takes huge courage to do that. It takes huge courage to be honest. Yeah. Vulnerability too. Yeah. It's big. And that's, that's one of the most crucial aspects of letting go of the past or finding a better way to view it is becoming courageous enough to open up about it. Once you then have a clear picture about it in the form of like written down on your journal or in the form of a conversation, you can then become open to different interpretations, different meanings. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to that book. It'll be a very interesting topic. Thank you. So Ben, last question, and this can be singular or, or repeated, but what's a personal or professional mistake that you've learned the most from? I mean, so many, but <laughs> I think, you know, I, I made a big mistake last weekend, even in a talk I gave. Um, I, I think that I learned a lot from the willpower doesn't work launch. You know, I, I went about it so wrong. I had complete overconfidence about how that book launch would go. Never launched a formal book. And, you know, I just assumed it would be easy because my blogs were getting millions of views. I, that was at the time when I was just drowning in new email subscribers. And I just assumed, you know, how many people have 300 plus email subscribers that are all fairly new and I did no ads for them. Like these are all, my email open rates and click rates are good for an email list the size of mine. And so yeah. I was just like, this is like, this would be easy. And I had a lot of help. And it didn't go well at all. And I blew hundreds of thousands of dollars on that launch. And what I learned from that 
experience and it's what I'm doing very different now. And really quickly, I will say in psychology, there's a concept called refractory period. And a refractory period is the amount of time that it takes to emotionally recover from an experience. So like if you're still recovering from something that happened when you were 10, then (laughs) you're still stuck in the past, right? Like, and so for me, admittedly, it took until I decided to write the next book to overcome, to get out of the rut that that launch put me into. You know, I was probably pretty bummed for about four months. But now I can look back and I can say, all of that happened for me, not to me. And that's really how the past should be viewed is it happened for me, if you learned from it, and if you're not stuck in it. And I think what I learned from it is no one cares about your book launch. (laughs) I thought I had a lot of friends. Maybe your family. (laughs) Some of them do, but I mean, even the people you think will really help you are busy as heck doing other things. And also no one, no one, I don't don't know. I just, I realized that I was very underprepared and underplanned. And I now realize now when I talk to people who are first time authors, that they're very underprepared and very underplanned. And I also just think just because you've got expertise in one domain doesn't mean it transfers. There's a theory, right? There's a theory on that, that actually the more you have in one domain, you tend to be overconfident in, in other related or yeah. unrelated domains. That could speak to me. Well, well, I don't normally ask questions about this, but now I'm, I'm curious because, you know, earlier you were so much, talked to so much about being like a voracious learner and the titles. I would assume you would call 10 authors and ask them about their experience or just the way you like to learn about something. So did you kind of skip that step? I didn't skip it, but I think I skipped it more than I thought I did. I think that some of the overconfidence bled in, honestly. You know, I did study it. I read some stuff and I, we did some things, but also I just was in a great position where I just assumed that, they, and I think assumption is sort of the right word, but also not the right word. I, I think that I just thought I was doing things right based on my current level of knowledge and understanding. and you know, I didn't do it right, frankly. But I mean, honestly, that was my first one. Like my first blog post wasn't perfect. (laughs) It took writing hundreds, right? And so I don't consider it a failure, but I definitely like, you know, the book sold over 100,000 copies. So it's not like it's, it's a complete failure, but it could have done enormously better. And yeah, you know, I learned a lot from it. I learned to let it go. I like the quote, a painting is never finished. It simply ends in an interesting place. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's not a finished book. This book's not finished. I'm going to do better on the next one. My future self's going to be better than I am today. But uh, I learned to prepare. And I think that when you have a hard failure, it can either be a trauma that stops you from ever wanting to do it again, or it can be the thing that cracks your ego and gets you super committed to what you really want. And for me, once I got committed back to the next book and the next goal, it was like, I'm not going to make that mistake again. And so I think it's allowed me with this book to be over-prepared, whereas before I was under-prepared. All right, I'm going to watch your tactics carefully then. I'll tell them all to you off the air. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. I I will call you because my next one's in... In September. Yeah. Anytime I've done something the first time I built the house and then I wanted to build another house because I was like, all right, now I know all the mistakes that I made. So I, that is that is not unusual. Well, Ben, where can people learn more about you, your work and your your books? BenjaminHardy.com. You know, that's my website. Blog posts are there. You can learn particularly about personalities and permanent, how you can get access to free courses, etc. in relation to the book. But yeah, BenjaminHardy.com is the place to go. All right. Well, thanks for sharing your story with us today. I loved hearing more about your journey and the way you think. And it's been a lot of fun. Uh, It's been really cool. Thank you for the conversation. All right. To our listeners, thanks for tuning into the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Ben and his work on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode or the Elevate podcast in general, I'd really appreciate if you could leave us a review. It helps new users discover the content. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, just select the library icon click on elevate, scroll down to the bottom and you can leave a rating or review. Thanks again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, 
and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you wanna learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.